a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Um, this episode of Ravel is going to be kind of unique. Um, number one, Stephen isn't here. Um, he's busy doing some other fun things. Number two, there are still three of us because Emily and I are interviewing our guest, Stacy Frenis, today. Um, we're going to start doing once a month some special bonus episodes on the main feed. So we'll still have three of every four episodes being roundtable theology topics and once in a blue moon, once a month, we're going to be doing something a little special. Maybe it's an interview, maybe it's not. So uh, today we have Stacey Frenis. She is an author, a musician, a worship leader, most importantly, a mother, and she has written this new book called Love Makes Room. So welcome, Stacey. Hello. Um, so Stacy, one of the things I think that would be great for our listeners is to just kind of get to know you a little bit more. Um, maybe share a little bit about yourself um, and what compelled you to write this book uh, before I get into the deep questions that I have. Right. Um, so I'm, as Josh mentioned, I'm an I'm a songwriter, a musician. I've been writing music and playing music all of my life. Most of it has been in faith spaces, in churches, and conferences, and retreats that kind of thing. I grew up as a Christian kid. I really met Jesus in a very personal way when I was 13 years old. And so I, you know, grew up as a teenager going to church, pretty conservative um, evangelical churches. All my life went to a um, conservative Christian Bible college, you know, met, met my high school sweetheart at church and married him. Um, had two kids and continued really making a career out of speaking and singing and eventually writing a couple of books. Um, the first book I wrote was a book on creativity and just kind of how to nurture a creative life, which seemed to fall very much in step with my life's calling as a musician and songwriter. And then about five years ago now, I really felt compelled to write a second book that was much more personal and transformational in nature, which is the book we were referring to called Love Makes Room. Um, it was a, a book about a real uh, huge shift in my own thinking and faith. And um, yeah, just kind of around a really big family event that happened with us. And so I wrote the book and have been kind of, you know, continuing in my path of just spiritual growing and continuing to write music and play music, but also very passionate about this topic that affected our family's life so deeply. I am so honored to be able to ask the questions uh, as someone who read this book. Um, and actually, I had to read it twice <laughs> because <sighs> there's always so much more information I feel like that you can learn. 
one of the things that I really appreciated uh, and you were right up front in the beginning of the book was you wanted to share this story before getting into the nitty gritty theological insight, because rather than telling everyone right up front, here's the thing and then share the story later, you want to make it clear that the story really helps with the raveling out of your theology and what happened uh, with your daughter coming out. What would you say to people who are experiencing a situation like this where maybe a loved one or a friend has come out um, and they don't quite know how to handle it. What would be some advice that you would share for individuals who are in the same situation? Yeah. And let me, um, if you don't mind, I'll just backpedal a tiny bit and tell a little bit of that story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just so your listeners kind of have a context for it. So when my daughter was 16, this was almost about 10 years ago now, um, when my daughter was 16, I was driving her to school one day and, you know, junior in high school, we had a really close relationship. She, um, was a, you know, a kid that went to youth group and was involved in church and had been pretty much grown up in, in our church environment all her life. And, um, on the way to school one morning was crying. And for months leading up to this, she had been very, um, had, had really, uh, become very reclusive and kind of sad and isolated and, um, her grades started slipping and, uh, you know, there were like some warning signs, but I didn't know what they all added up to. And on the way to school, I, I was questioning her what was wrong and she couldn't answer me and she was just sobbing. And I remember pulling the car over and saying, um, her name is Abby. I said, Abby, I, I, you know, I'm not going to take you to school like this. I, I, I'm really trying to help you here and help understand what's wrong. And she said, um, you know, she said, if I tell you what's wrong, I'll have to tell you everything. And, you know, she could barely get the words out. She was just crying so hard. And I could, I could just see that this was something that was terrifying her and really didn't, she was not wanting to talk about it. And of course my my brain went to a lot of worst case scenarios. You know, I thought maybe there was someone hurting her or some abuse happening or even possibly an unwanted or surprise pregnancy or something. And and I remember just, you know, asking and asking and asking, just gently trying to nudge out this information. And finally, I mean, gosh, like an hour of this. And finally, I remember just digging way deep into the recesses of my heart and going, you know, cause she said, this is over a breakup. Someone broke my heart. And I said, is this about a girl? Are you, are you telling me, are you trying to tell me that you're gay? And it was, you know, she, she, she nodded her head. It was kind of all she could do to just nod her head. And, you know, in that car, in that moment, I, it was like, I felt two different responses simultaneously. One was just absolute love for my daughter that she trusted me with this information and that she could tell me that and that I finally got to the bottom also of what was wrong and she wasn't being abused or hurt or anything really obviously harmful. But at the same time, um, just because of my own understanding of how I'd been raised and what I believed and how I approached the Bible on this topic, I, I was terrified. In the moment, I reached over and hugged her and said, it's going to be okay. I love you no matter what. Of course, we'll get through this together. Um, but really, in the pit of my stomach, I felt absolute terror because I had no idea how to 
kind of how to process this. Um, I think that, you know, in that moment, I realized that that these two things had to fit into my heart. My, the faith that I had grown up with all my life, my understanding that the Bible was clear about this topic and that it, you know, in no uncertain terms, it said homosexuality was a sin. And at the same time, here was the daughter I loved with all of my heart telling me, I am gay. And it was like my heart was broken open because it was like it couldn't fit both of those truths at the same time. Um, Mm -hmm. And that I think oftentimes is how people feel when a loved one comes out. They, They are split into two different minds. And the reason I wrote this book is to walk people through my process of really understanding that love really does make room for the unexpected, for what we may think is an impossible truth or understanding or whatever you want to call it. In my case, it was a matter of making room for a much deeper, wider, broader understanding of what it means to be gay. So that kind of was my journey. And that's really what the book is about. I think you know, in the time, at the time, I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't have books available to me. I mean, my circle of friends and my circle of contacts were all church folks, you know, people that I had networked with and grown up with and and been in Bible studies with and, and worship teams and all of that. Like that was my culture. And in that culture, I didn't feel like I had a safe place to talk about this because everyone else, you know, for the most part, um, or at least I assumed, thought the way I did about it. So one of the first things I did was simply hop on the internet <laughs> and try to figure mm-hmm. out what what does this mean? And are there other Christians out here who out there who've like gone through this? And how do I talk about this with other people, much less my own daughter? And um you know, as you can imagine, when you first Google something as huge and broad as a topic like that, you get all kinds of articles and oh yeah, you know, forums and websites. And I mean, it was it was kind of a cesspool of just way too much information and a lot of bad information um, that I had to wade through until I began to just make some headway into the science of it, the cultural aspects of it. You know, just the um, what sociology told us, you know, and then I, I think at the same time as, as you brought out the theology piece of it was so confusing to me for such a long time that I kind of just put it on the back burner. I thought Mm. I can love my daughter. I can, I mean, she's a teenager. I'm still have to raise a daughter in in my house. You know, Uh, there are sort of practical things that I need to do as a mom that I can still do or that we can ask questions about and have awkward conversations about and get through and learn to, to get used to this. But the theology part of things for me was kind of the last wrestling match, if you will, that I did with my own Mm. really deeply rooted, uh, I'd say biases and belief systems and even cultural kind of norms and that kind of thing around the topic. So 
yeah, I would just say probably the very first thing to do is just let the person know you love them. And because that's one of the biggest things that an LGBTQ person is going to be feeling, especially if they're telling their conservative Christian friends or parents or loved ones is that first fear is that they're going to be rejected. Um, Mm. So I would say that even if you don't have the theology figured out yet, because I sure didn't at first, um, at least let that person know you're here for them. You're listening. You're, you love them. And that piece of things has not changed. I really appreciate that that's the first thing you tell people that they should do, because I feel like so often it can be easy to want to get all the answers first and to try to you know fix a problem, quote unquote. But I think we often find ourselves forgetting that that's a person, you know, they're they're another human being and they're trying to share something about themselves with you. Um, Mm -hmm. And so rather than approaching it as a problem to be fixed, actually seeing them as a person and to say, yeah, I love you. I think that's so important. And I I really love that. And I love how, you know, you are honest and upfront about how it took you a long time to wrestle with the theology and, you know, handling scripture on this topic. What were some things that you found difficult or maybe even easy uh, when navigating scripture after Abby came out? Um, Because I'm sure after Abby came out, when you read scripture, things probably felt like they were turned on its head or you weren't sure how to interpret. Like, how did scriptural interpretation change for you after Abby came out? I think one of the first big questions that needed answering in my heart was, is God mad at her? Is God somehow turning his back on her because of who she is now? Did God change his mind about his love for her because she's gay? That was this big question that was looming in my head. And I tried to approach it from all these different angles and, and, you know, kind of had to look at scriptures that talked about God's, um, you know, God, Psalm 139, you know, God knitting us mm-hmm. in our mother's womb. I thought about that scripture often in the early days and weeks after Abby came out because I realized, you know, this news that Abby shared with me at age 16 was brand new to me, but it was not new to God. I believe that God and trusted that God formed her and knit her in my womb and put her together and saw all of her, you know, parts as whole and and made her just as she was. And that part of it for me was was really the first big, big hurdle. And it was trusting those scriptures. It was trusting the scriptures that God God creator, God image maker, created in the image of God, um, that we are his masterpiece, that we are beloved, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, just kind of tracing the threads of scripture that talk about God's pursuit of his own creation, human beings. I had to believe that Abby was part of that good creation that God created, that got formed. And God said in Genesis, this is good. It is good. And coming to that understanding was a big part of it for me because once I accepted that 
God saw her as good, that she wasn't somehow, because see the, the thinking that I was grasp that I was kind of fighting against was that she's broken somehow, that she's, mm. um, that something's wrong with her because she's attracted to people of the same sex, that somehow something got, you know, wired wrong or something. Was it something I did? Was it something that happened um, when I was pregnant? Was it something that was in some sort of genetic, you know, coding? Was it, I was trying to figure those things out on that premise that something was wrong or broken about her. Mm. And mm. it was really only after I, you know, I, and this is the beauty of being a mother of a child who comes out is that, you know, this human being like no other, you know? Um, and in the days and months after Abby came out, guess what? She was the same person as before Abby came out to me. It's like, mm. I knew this child in and out. I knew what her strengths and weaknesses were. I knew that she loved puppies. I knew that she was scared of heights. I knew that she was, uh, athletic. I knew that she, like, I knew all those things about her. And though none of those essential things about Abby changed after she came out to us. And mm. it logic told me this is the same child. I just didn't know a month ago or a day ago that she was gay, you know, that she was attracted to people of the same sex. And once it became clear to me that that premise was actually a faulty premise, that sh that something was got broken or wrong or wired incorrectly in her, and now she had a distorted, you know, kind of view of love or sex or whatever you want to call it or identity, because I watched, I watched her naturally grow up. I watched her fall in love, and it was the exact same process that happened when I fell in love with my husband. It was like. I saw that the desires within her heart were not perverted or harmful or wanting to cause herself or anyone else harm. It was just the natural way she was developing. And that allowed me to then trust that God had not made a mistake, that God did not see Abby's sexual identity as some kind of willful disobedience that in fact, it was who she was. It was, you know, to the extent that people are left-handed or have red hair, Abby was attracted to people of the same sex. It, it began to, um, I began to see it in such a different way. And I would say that, you know, identity and belovedness was at the core of what changed my heart. I, I then moved into what they call the clobber verses and did some mm. heavy duty diving and reading into cultural, historical, linguistic contexts around those verses. And I honestly, we don't have, you know, time to go into the really detailed kinds of things I was looking into. But as, as I've heard other mothers say, other Christian moms of LGBTQ kids, you know, Nobody searches those scriptures like a the mother of a gay child. Mm -hmm. Because as I just told you, my terror was that she was going to be eternally separated from God. And so I went into my study of scripture with this fierce determination to discover what God thought about this whole thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I really was 
quite amazingly surprised at and saddened at how often those clobber verses about homosexuality have been misinterpreted and weaponized against the LGBTQ community for decades. And it was through the help of lots of resources that I arrived at some of these conclusions, um, particularly in the area of, I mean, because most of us aren't Greek and Hebrew Bible scholars, but we rely and lean into the knowledge and learning of others who've done a lot of work in this area, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. One thing that I'm really struck by in your answers so far is um, in our uh, past uh, now forbidden interview that does not exist. Uh, <laughs> we, I feel like you focused a lot on the theme of grief as a parent going through this like cognitive dissonance, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. And what I'm struck by now is uh, this theme of fear on your part. Like not only was Abby obviously afraid in word in ways that she probably couldn't put into words at the time, but you also were afraid. I think that's really interesting. Like you bringing up the fear of mm. your daughter being mm. eternally consciously tormented, and I'm I'm curious if there are other aspects in that situation that brought up that like guttural response of fear for you. Sure, there was fear of being rejected by my community. Um, there was fear of Abby leaving her faith altogether and separating from our family and finding her friends and new family in the LGBTQ community and shutting the door forever on us Mm -hmm. and on her own faith background. There was the fear of losing my vocation. I was Mm -hmm. a speaker and singer and worship leader in evangelical churches. And as I was moving toward this more inclusive, broader understanding of who my daughter was, and I was becoming more vocal about it, I I could see, I mean, I could see people not being comfortable with that. And in turn, I also could see, and there were very tangible ramifications of, you know, my job kind of changing uh, doors closing, being uninvited from spaces where they felt my views were not aligning with their church doctrine. And those were, you know, that was a very real fear as it turns out, it, it, it ended up coming to pass. Losing my community, that was also a fear that ended up pretty much in many ways uh, coming t- true. I've had to mm-hmm. discover new community and find new people who are walking this same journey of asking these same questions and opening their hearts. And, you know, some call it deconstructing, some call it, I I never used that kind of language because I thought it was more about, like, my book is called Love Makes Room. To me, it's more about growing your understanding Mm -hmm. of God and people and the world. So, but it's definitely been something that not a lot of people in my, I guess, former life, if you will, haven't walked, haven't wanted to walk along there with me. You know, they've, they've just been either very quiet or they've been vocally um, opposed to what I've been saying and, Mm. and kind of putting out there. Mm -hmm. When Josh was asking that question in, um, in the forbidden interview that we don't speak of anymore, when you had (laughs) talked about grief, 
you know, one of the things that did strike me was grief as a whole in this entire process. You know, there's one part in your book where you talk about you guys are getting ready to move and you find your box uh, that has your wedding dress in it and you pulled it down and you're wondering, is Abby ever going to wear this? Like, what does her future look like? as an individual who, you know, is attracted to the same sex as her. Like there was the grief of not knowing, you know, the loss of what her potential future could be. There was the loss of community. But I feel like you gained so much also. There was one part in your book I really loved uh, is the, t- the chapter titled The BLTs. Uh, yeah, <laughs> where you're trying to remember the acronyms and finally the letters just BLT came across. Um <laughs> And I think for people who are having such a difficult time with change, and this Mm -hmm. was a change for sure, you were able to find joy, you know, in the midst of learning more about Abby and more about the LGBTQ community and learning more about your faith with Abby coming out, you were able to make room for joy. Um, What have been some things that have sparked joy for you in the midst of all of this? Well, another story I talk about in the book is, you know, really being determined to bridge my, to kind of bridge the gap between what I saw as the LGBTQ community and, you know, our family and faith community. And I was determined not to lose Abby to this kind of chasm of the unknown. You know, I didn't know what in my day, you know, there was a lot of just really negative kind of connotation around the gay community. and. I didn't, I just didn't know what kind of friends she was hanging out with, what they did, where they hung out, what they were involved in. I didn't know. And so I thought, well, the only way to find out is to, is to cross that bridge and to take baby steps toward knowing, you know, whether, whether it be asking her questions about her friends. And I mean, I, I, I've had just like so many cringy, awkward conversations with her where, you know, I can remember early on asking her about the way some people dress and why there's this sort of sometimes androgynous look among some of her lesbian friends and, um, why, you know, like questions that just, I'm sure she was, well, she, I don't even have to guess. I know for a fact she would roll her eyes and just be like, mom, seriously, you know, are you really asking me that? And and honestly, it would oftentimes those question and answers would just dissolve into both of us laughing because I, it's like, I'm, I was determined to find out more about what it was like to be gay. And at the same time, I knew I was asking super awkward questions that I would never get away with asking of just, you know, your average stranger. Right. But so one time, my daughter is also a singer songwriter. And there was one time where she was um, going to be playing an open mic night at like a a bar type situation. And she was only 19 at the time, but they were letting her play in this one venue. And she said, do you want to come hear me, mom? And, And I said, sure. And it was one of my kind of efforts to get more involved in her life and just kind of be among her friends. And what I didn't realize until the last minute is that the venue that she had invited me to was largely a a lesbian bar. And so as I walked in, I can't even tell you like how I felt like there had to be this spotlight on me, just, you know, my demeanor, my, the way, the way I dressed, I'm sure everything about me just screamed, you know, hetero Christian mom coming through. (laughs) And yet, I took my seat at a table with her friends and I listened to them 
chat and talk and I listened to my daughter sing. And, you know, that evening was so full of so many um, really beautiful moments that taught me so much about how we put labels on people we don't understand. And we, we think that just by slapping a label on a group of people, we've got them figured out. And nothing could be further from the truth. As I sat and listened to these young women talking about their jobs or their schools, you know, situation or their parents or their relationships or just all the normal things that young people talk about, it just was this huge revelation that came to me like, oh, these are just people. These are the same kinds of people as if I were sitting among a mixed group of, you know, men and women who were, you know, heterosexual and all of the same topics came up, all of the same fears and joys and funny things. And it's been moments like that where I've realized just how far from the truth my original thinking was about the LGBTQ community. And also just within our family. I mean, you you mentioned the BLTs. I mean, my husband is someone who he was a little bit dyslexic and he could not like he, for the life of him, he could not get LGBTQ correct in the right sequence over and over and over whenever he tried to talk about it. So it just became the family joke that he would blurt out, you know what I mean? The BLTs. And we, it just kind of stuck. So like all of a sudden it, her friends became the BLTs and stuff like that. Like if you can give yourself permission to laugh at your own awkwardness, at your own lack of mm. understanding and it was it was her it was her giving us grace and us giving her grace and i think that you know i think it's Brené Brown that says you know you can't hate someone up close and if you and i would say this to any of your listeners you know if if you don't have friends who are somewhere in that lgbtq you know blt <laughs> mashup there <laughs> if you don't have friends that are different than you in that in that realm. I would ask, you know, why not? Is it because you're avoiding them? Is it because you're afraid? Is it because you don't think you have anything in common? Is it because you're judging them? Is it because um, you know, what is it? Because the thing I've discovered is that, you know, a hundred percent people are people. And there are so many more things about us that are alike than are different. So as someone who has not read your book, uh, I plan to, I would love to, <laughs> um, I, I'm really curious if you, like what kind of theological language you use in your book, like do you or not engage with like the discourse of like sin concept and well, whichever answer you go with, I'm curious like how you use theological language in your book overall. Right. Um you know, someone who really, someone whose work really helped me in this area would, was Matthew Vines. Matthew Vines wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian, and he maintains a very um, close relationship to scripture and um, does a really beautiful job of, of really making clear the historical and cultural context in which the verses around homosexuality are, are written. I would say that I came to understand that probably the best way to explain it, and again, I feel like it would take you know lots and lots of these interviews to really 
get through it all. But I would say that in general, where I landed in terms of theology was just that what the Bible refers to as homosexuality or homosexual acts are by and large the kind of behavior that would have been most commonly known as violent, exploitive, in some case, even prostitution, Mm -hmm. a lot of times exploitive from older men to younger men. In other words, the language around it, because you'll see it in these in these vice lists, you know, you'll see the word homosexuality along with like adulterer, thief, you know, those kinds of things. It is not the same concept as what we think of as monogamous gay relationships or monogamous, you know, lesbian relationships. Uh, so th- that was a, a really big game changer for me in terms of just seeing what you know, and, and just also just doing a really deep dive into the understanding of how how we have we have, if you want to say, evolved from our understanding of slavery or or women's role in the church, uh, any of these n- any number of things for which there are obviously verses that you could clobber, you know, folks mm-hmm. with, and that the church used for decades against people groups. I now see that as very similar to how these seven verses around homosexuality have been very grossly misinterpreted and have been used to um, isolate and, and demean and really vilify an entire people group. So I still hold to a, a fairly, you know, close, I don't want to get into like inerrancy and all that kind of stuff, but as far as the scripture <laughs> yeah, goes, the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm, you know, I, I would say, I would say I have been um, th- that, in some ways, the homosexuality topic for me was a Pandora's box in the sense that it opened up a really broader understanding of scripture and how we use scripture and what is scripture for. And, you know, for example, I I really grew up with the understanding that scripture was like this very specific how-to manual that you go to, to find specific answers for your life. And Mm. I, I no longer for the most part, I think that's the case. I love Rachel Held Evans' book, Inspired, where she oh, talks yeah. about just the beauty of scripture as it's in its variety of letters and poems and stories and essays. And it's this rich, rich legacy of people writing about their experiences with God. And it is a way to understand and know God. But at the same time, it's certainly I don't I don't think I put the same weight on the Bible as I might have in my very conservative evangelical former life. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, the United Methodist Church currently um, is experiencing quite the schism. Uh, we now have what's called the Global Methodist Church and the United Methodist Church, and the Global Methodist churches, the more conservative, um, non-affirming, reconciling side of the denomination, and the United Methodist churches, um, the more affirming and reconciling and open to uh, interpretation in regards to LGBTQ individuals. And so I think for me as a pastor in the United Methodist Church, reading your book was so informative and also life-giving. If you ever listen to any of our episodes, that's one of my go-to phrases is life-giving. Um, hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, what would you say to faith communities who are wrestling with this idea? Because I know for you, your community has changed immensely. You know, you had said there are 
you know, you you don't get to help in worship settings and your, you know, your friends and churches have changed and your circle of your faith community has changed. What would you say for those communities who are wrestling with this? You know, like, would you give them a copy of your book? Would you sit down and have coffee with them? Like, how would you come to be face to face with them and have life giving conversations where they see this as a sin? They see your daughter as someone who needs to be healed and that they'll pray for her, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, by the way, I really appreciate you sharing about the, the Methodist schism. I, I, I read a book a year ago. You've probably read it by Michael B. Curry. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's called love is the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful book about kind of about that same, same topic. Yeah. I, I would, um, I'm very much trying to find a way, a way to talk about this to people who um, are still. Because here's here's my here's my belief that whether we're actually talking about it in conservative evangelical spaces or not, there are human beings sitting in the pews, sitting in Bible studies, sitting in the choir, sitting in worship teams who are either LGBTQ plus or who are, you know, parents or loved ones or friends or whatever, like we're all, most of us have been touched by this topic by not that many degrees of separation. Um, The fact that it's still so taboo and not talked about and hush hush in most evangelical churches to me is the great, great shame of really where we have wronged our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, I think, or siblings, I should say. Um, I absolutely am open to to speaking to folks about this and find myself in conversations like that all of the time. And what I find is that there is this tendency to to kind of fall into this love the sinner, hate the sin thinking without understanding that we're not talking about sin. <laughs> We're not talking mm-hmm. about someone who's willfully sinning. And we're also not talking about someone who is, quote, giving into their weakness. We're talking about someone who is has been designed differently. And that is a fundamental um, point of difference among many people. And there's also kind of a spectrum along there as well, as, as I'm sure you, you guys have come to understand as you talk about this. But I would say that we may never, all of us, come to full agreement on what scripture says about this. But I think we need to absolutely put aside some of those demands and needs we think we have for certainty and instead put the well being of the human beings who are in our churches and struggling with this, whether from the point of a loved one or the point of someone who has not come out yet or who's afraid to come out because they're going to, they feel that they're going to be rejected. I get messages and emails almost weekly from young people whose parents have not been as accepting or affirming as I've been and as I talk about in the book and who are desperately hoping that their parents will understand them but until they do they they feel as though they can't have these kinds of open-hearted conversations with their parents i think you know there's i think evangelicals especially 
we really want our Bible verses to line up exactly with where our, you know, we want to be able to kind of arm ourselves with these scriptures and say, here's why I believe this. Here's why I do this. Here's why, because scripture says this, that, and the other. And all the while, you know, we're wearing this armor, the armor of God, if you will. <laughs> and so is the other person in many cases. And, and as you know, there are all these different topics where we kind of come at each other with our own armor, our own Bible verses that can back up whatever side or perspective we want to argue. But at the end of the day, you know, have we loved well? Have we loved one another well? Have we loved the outcast? Have we fed the hungry? Have we welcomed the poor? Um, I I have to believe that in this area especially, it's going to be relationships and honoring our love for one another above our certainty in scripture that's going to bring resolution and more compassion, compassionate action toward LGBTQ folks in the church. Mm. I I deeply appreciate that answer. Um as a pastor who is seeing, you know, many individuals grapple with this idea of you can be gay and be a Christian. Um I know Josh had shared <laughs> thoughts on that before. Um it just kind of blows my mind that we forget that love is at the center of it all. And so I think the way your book lays out each chapter perfectly makes sense. You know, you're making room for the expectations and you're making room for awkward conversations and you're making room for questions. And to make room is, the, I think, one of the ultimate acts of love. Um, what was it like for Abby and seeing her faith community and your faith community wrestle with this. Um, there's one part, I actually cried reading it, where um, you were invited to sing at an event and you got that phone call and someone had shared in an email a blog that you wrote about Abby and they were asking you to no longer participate in that event because of your views on homosexuality um, and Abby not wanting to go to church. And like, how, how did that make you feel? Yeah, that's been a really tough aspect of this is that, you know, your community as a Christian, many times are, it's the people you go to church with. It's the people that show up and pray or bring casseroles when somebody dies or when somebody gets hurt or when you just, you know, it's, it's the people that rally to, to help you and to show you the love of Jesus that become your community and the people you lean on. And, um, this was an area where I instinctively knew and then later found out, you know, in real time mm -hmm. that people don't rally for this one. People don't come around and say, we're with you. We're walking with you on this. We're asking these questions with you. We'll, we're willing to open our hearts and read different books outside of our denomination about this to, to better understand what your journey is, to better understand your child. People, there's just this real wall that comes up that kind of is like, well, we can't condone the sin or, well, you just have to love them, but you can't love the lifestyle. I mean, I would get those kind of comments all the time and just realize, oh, well, that's, that's really not helpful to a mother raising a gay child. Mm -hmm. And as far as Abby goes, I think once she was out, you know, there, there was a brief 
There was a brief time when we thought maybe we could try and make a difference in our own local church. We could maybe, like she was, you know, she was and is very gifted musically. We thought, well, let's um, let's just be really open and honest with a couple of our our leadership team folks. And I'd been like, you know, a worship leader for twenty some years, and I knew that I was respected in that in that realm. And I had been a worship leader at, at my own church for years, and so when my husband and I kind of brought it to some of the folks in leadership at our church that we'd like that Abby had an interest in possibly playing guitar and singing on the youth worship team, um, it was made very clear to us that she that was would not be she'd not be able to do that. Mm. And you know, I think it was conversations like that where we realized that you know the people we were standing next to in our churches in our church they would not say the same prayers for our daughter as they would for their own child. They would not want the same kind of flourishing and using their gifts and becoming the a whole person that they're meant to be. They would not want that for my child the way they would want it for their child. And um, that became a deal breaker for me, to be really honest with you. Uh, we stopped going to our, our home church. And it was, I mean, it was a home church for many years, you know, Mm -hmm. and we, we really haven't landed anywhere. Well, especially since COVID, we kind of been doing online church, but we just haven't found a, a home church again, since all of this happened because of that, of just not, of, of wanting to make sure that wherever we go next time, we're with people that value, um, value human lives, you know, over their mm. own interpretation of scripture. And um, mm. that became a, a, a difficult point of hurt and grief. It's still, we're still grieving it. We're still grieving the loss of community and um, a lot of church connections, you know. But like you said, too, you, there's so much to be gained when you do continue to ask questions and grow and refuse to stay in a, you know a a mindset that is not obviously not going to to serve in this case it wasn't loving you know the mindset that that I grew up with around this topic so you know it's difficult but at the same time there's good in it too mm mm-hmm. Stacey, I really like the way that you've worded how Abby's coming out to you like felt like a disruption to you. And like you felt like that the implications of that situation would most likely come true. And like in many ways they did, like whether it was your church community or like your belief shifting. I'm curious if there have been other examples where like a similar disruption has turn into an opportunity for your faith to expand, um, maybe in a similar way, maybe in a smaller way. And I'm also curious, uh, like after going through that or multiple situations, how can we help see ourselves or help show other people that these disruptions, what feel like disruptions in the moment can be opportunities for an expansive faith, even if we don't see it that way at the time? Yeah. Um, those are great questions. They're very thought provoking. And I, I can I can definitely tell you that opening my heart up 
to the LGBTQ community and the the whole topic as a whole definitely softened and opened my heart to other marginalized groups that I I may have maybe given lip service to to saying, you know, yes, I, I see that they're marginalized or yes, I understand that they're um struggling. But I think it it is just and I think anyone who whether you experience a, a death or whether you experienced a any kind of like radical change of your of how you see your future and the future that you begin walking in, you know, having to let go of old expectations is kind of like is an is an opportunity to to grow and to see to see God in in bigger ways. You know, I I've read I've done some reading of Richard Rohr and he talks about how in God everything gets included more and more, like more and more gets included as you go deeper into who God is and, and the bigness of what God is and, and less gets excluded, you know, and that, that starts becoming a real, almost like a, a, a shifting in your whole posture, you know, like you, you just approach people more open-heartedly. I think when you realize in my case, wow, I was so wrong about an entire group of people. What else am I wrong about? Who else am I wrong about? That's been really eye-opening for me. And, you know, as far as just seeing disruption as an opportunity for an expansion of faith, I mean, I honestly think you could you can even go back to scripture for this one and just go, wow. I mean, there were so many stories in which it was exactly disruption that brought about i mean look at the the story of Saul who became Paul you know and the story of sort of Jacob wrestling with the angel and to become Israel you know from Jacob to Israel it's like these these huge changes in our lives come at a cost they come many times at a at a wounding at a grieving at a death even if you will before there can be the resurrection before there can be the new understanding the the new revelation. Um, so I think for me, you know, those early questions of God, uh, you know, like how everyone sort of go, when you feel like you, you're getting, you're in the middle of a, a big storm or whatever, God, why me? Why am I getting pounded? Why is the storm happening? And and realizing that you're getting caught in this this storm and that that storm on the other side of that storm it is usually something that you never would have discovered if it hadn't been for the storm itself. And, and so I understand how that's difficult, especially when you're in a very painful situation that brings with it lots of just very difficult, um, hard things to contend with. But man, I just, I think time and time again, on the other side of those storms, you, you can see what kind of what treasures you were able to pull from those those dark places that you never would have found had it not been for those storms. Mm. Wow. I feel like you can learn so much about an individual through the stories that they tell. And I think for people who, and I highly, highly, highly recommend that you pick up this book, Love Makes Room, truly. Um, I feel like I learned so much about God through reading your book. You know, I learned about you and I've learned about Abby, but I've learned about God. You know, I've learned about this idea of 
who God can be in in all of our lives and the ways that we can have love truly be the center of everything. How is your relationship with God now? It you know, it feels it feels amazing. It it, it feels like I'm really on this new discovery of I don't know, it's almost like being on a hike and coming, you know, walking up a really hard hill for a long time, but you but once you get to the crest of the hill, you realize there's this huge expanse of view that you didn't have a while ago when you were climbing up it. And I I feel like the last few years have been that climb and now I'm looking out at a more expansive view of God. And that excites me, you know, it, it really excites me. I have to say, I'm, I'm excited to also discover like-minded people, you know, people who are mm. on a path that's also trying to get to higher places, if you will, you know, tr- trying to move to more um, deeper and enlightened, like understanding of love and what Jesus really, really meant when he said that all of the law, the whole of the law can be summed up in these two, you know, love God with all your heart and mind and strength and love your neighbor. Like if we spend an entire lifetime just figuring that out, I think we we're doing pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, were there any questions that you had before we wrap things up? Yeah, uh, I do have one more question. But also, before I forget, um, we are giving away two copies of Stacy's book. Uh, we are giving away one on social media, and we are also giving away one to our group of patrons. Um, so that will also include anyone who happens to sign up to be a patron during this month. Uh, giveaway will happen at the end of the month. Um, so if you are interested in getting a free copy of Stacy's book, Keep an eye out for that. Um, we'll put some links in the show notes uh, for the social media giveaways, uh, if that's you. Um, Stacy, I would love to hear your favorite way. Maybe, maybe your uh, like giving a shout out to an unsung hero way of supporting either an LGBTQ organization or supporting an LGBTQ person. Mm. Oh, that's great. I I think that. There's a really deep sense of need among the LGBTQ community to, and and they wouldn't, not everyone would voice this. And and I'm not saying like it's, not saying it in a condescending way, but I, I'm saying that we don't understand the power that we have as, as just people who love LGBTQ people. Whether you've got a friend or a you know a child or if you know someone in your life who is either in the process of coming out or, or is out, you know, just being an ally to them, letting, letting, and and the way to do that is, is I'm about to explain, it can be something as simple as just posting something on social media that, that shows that you're, you know, that you're standing with them, that you see them, that, you know, for example, if if you're watching as a lot of this anti-LGBTQ legislation is getting passed in all these different states, you know, and that bothers you and you feel that it that it's it's hurting, you know, people you know who are 
in the LGBTQ community, just saying something simple on Twitter or on Facebook to, as a sign of solidarity or support for for the LGBTQ community, it goes a long way. I mean, I, I it always amazes me that just saying one or two things a week on my social media, you know, in support of just LGBTQ folks, it's like, I get messages all the time. Like, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for being, you know, a lot of Christians don't say that. Thank you for being an ally. You don't know how much that means to me. So, you know, don't underestimate the power of your own kindness and your own voice and your own, even if it's just a small, quiet show of support for someone who's LGBTQ. Um, And also just like what I was saying earlier about how sometimes the most important thing you can say is just, I love you. I accept you. I hear you. I see you. What's it like to be you? Um, in other words, embrace the person before your need to embrace certainty around the theology about that person, I would say, have been kind of the two rules of thumb that I, I really try to follow. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it was a pleasure to get to talk to you twice, even if our listeners are only going to hear it once. <laughs> um, and I'm looking forward to reading your book. So thanks for being here. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a joy. Um, and like I said, I highly recommend that you pick up this book, Love Makes Room and Other Things I Learned When My Daughter Came Out. Um, and also check out Stacy's music and check out Stacy's other works and just love her and love on her work and show support for someone who has been spreading God's love um, in so many ways. Um, for me personally, it has been such a joy being able to ask you questions and to have this resource to share with my parishioners and those I come into contact with. Uh, thank you so much, Stacy. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I love that, Emily. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Emily, we usually wrap up our shows. Oh, oh Josh, were you going to say was, something? Well, I was just going to say, um, Emily, do you have a word for us or a benediction to close out? I, I do. It actually comes from her book. It's actually like one of the last things that she says. And I think it's just a great way to capture everything that this entire process has been about. There was a glow in the room that night, like grace, hovering over and around and between us, grace softening the edges of our pain, healing our wounds, and stirring our hope. It was one of those rare and holy times when a sense of peace and acceptance of things as they were flooded through me. The painful memories of the past and anxious what-ifs of tomorrow hung suspended in time as I felt only gratitude. My prayer is that we have that same sense of peace and gratitude as we continue to dive deeper into our faith and our understanding of God and God at work in the world. And may we find ways to have wholesome conversations, even on topics that might be difficult and confusing, but ultimately life-giving and loving. Media Network, artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.